You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify. The global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to Art Smart from Who Arted, your guide to quick and easy art history. We're cutting through all that art world jargon that doesn't make sense to anyone, because art is for everyone. Welcome to Art Smart. I'm your host, Kyle Wood, and today we're going to be looking at photography. Now, whenever I think back to the roots of photography, I always think of Louis Daguerre. Louis Daguerre did not invent photography. He was not the first to create a photographic image or a photographic still life, but his work and his process was hugely influential. Decades before Daguerre, there were other scientists experimenting with silver compounds that would eventually be used for photography. Some were able to capture photographic images, but they quickly faded. Daguerre was not the first but he was an innovator and among the first to make photography workable. He was among the first to see photography not only as a science, but an art form. His oldest known photograph, the artist's studio, also called Still Life with Plaster Casts, from 1837, was created from an artistic lens. In fact, he sent it off to Alphonse de Callier, the director of the Louvre, and the tastemakers in Paris rejected photography from the salons. Now, before I get into the artistry of it, I just want you to understand a little bit about how things were constructed. Those early photographs needed a long exposure. It could take around 10 or 15 minutes, and few subjects could sit still for that long. This is why the first subjects of photos tended to be landscapes or still lives. You know, things that'll be still for a long time. The plaster casts were a practical subject. They were also intended to send a message that photography was a new medium, but it could handle traditional subject matter. In this collection, we see an arrangement of casts of Venus, Cupid, the wings and heads of two cherubs, above those cherub and putty heads that would have been associated with Phaethon, son of Helios, we see the ram's head, and the golden ram in Greek mythology was a descendant of Helios, the sun god. 
Central to the composition, we see these references to Greek mythology, making a connection between the new medium and classic subjects. But more significantly, we're seeing references to the sun, which, if we break photography down, photo means light, graphy is writing. The photographic process is making a picture with light. The sunlight triggers a chemical reaction causing silver compounds to darken. Of course, in Daguerre's method, there were a few things I wouldn't recommend. Most notably, he would expose his photoplates to mercury vapors in the development process. His process was highly toxic. It was also a huge step forward for photographers. The French Academy of Fine Arts didn't really care for photography, but the press was captivated. They wrote glowing reviews of all his demonstrations. One writer at the time said, quote, Every picture that was shown us produced an exclamation of admiration. The fineness in the strokes, what knowledge of chiaroscuro, what delicacy, how admirably the foreshortenings given. This is nature itself. All this is wonderful. End quote. Of course, the still life was not nature itself. It was a collection of man-made objects quite deliberately constructed. As I said, there was a bit of symbolism, but if we look at it through a formalist lens, we see a variety of texture, a good range of values. The arrangement is well-balanced. Daguerre was working to demonstrate traditional composition in the new medium. But of course, photography would also lead to innovations in the old media. Painters started to adopt the close-cropped style of photography, with the realization that the camera could capture texture, value, line, shape, and proportion so accurately, artists shifted their focus to the elements a camera could not capture. Early on, this meant color, and it just so happens that the Impressionist movement came along on the heels of the daguerreotype. Now, just one more fun little fact about early photography. As I said, the first subjects tended to be still lives or landscapes because of the long exposure times needed. In 1838, Daguerre pointed his camera out the window to capture a view of the Boulevard de Temple. Because of the long exposure, the moving traffic left no trace in the final image. But it just happened that someone was having his boots shined as Daguerre took the photo. As a result, those two people, the man having his boots polished and the person polishing the boots, remained steady in their places long enough to appear in the photograph, despite Daguerre's intention to capture the buildings and the street. It's the world's oldest photograph of people, and you might say, the world's first photobomb. Now, in the late 19th century, around 1880, here in the United States, George Eastman, a young hobbyist photographer, became one of the first to successfully manufacture dry plates commercially for photography. And in the years that followed, Eastman's company, Kodak, became synonymous with film all over the world. So after the break, I'm going to talk to someone from Kodak to get their insights into photography. 
Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So joining me now, I have Matt Stoffel, a film nut um, and expert on all things photography, working at Kodak. You said you have a background in um, traditional film photography and digital, which means you are the perfect person to come and nerd out with me on photography and all of that stuff. Thank you so much for coming on to join me. Thank you very much for the invitation. Very excited to be here. I am excited to talk to to you about this because, you know, my background, I remember doing the chemistry of photography in college and um, doing copper prints and cyanotypes and mixing up the chemicals to make papers sensitive to light and stuff like that. But admittedly, I do have some pretty big gaps in my knowledge with photography. So hopefully um, our listeners and I will learn something here from you today. So I know, as I've alluded to, historically, there have been a lot of processes for developing photos, but can you just tell us generally how images are captured on film? Right. So I think um, regardless of whether you're talking uh, color or black and white, the most important thing uh, is silver. So silver is, um, that's why it's called silver halide. And so it's mixed with a halide, these silver crystals. Um, those silver crystals, uh, when, when, when joined like that, they become light sensitive. And so they are then deposited through um, a process where we make an emulsion. And so you may have heard film talked about as, well, what's your favorite emulsion? Those types of things. So that's where that name comes from. It's because there's uh, there's a dispersion of these silver crystals and lots of other stuff. Um, if you care to know, it's kind of a rabbit hole. But um, there's lots of other stuff in there that helps. But there's the silver crystals, um, silver halide crystals, and they are um, in a gelatin. That gelatin is coated onto whatever surface we need it to be uh, coated onto um, very, very, very thinly. Um, and then, uh, and, and I'll talk real simple terms we can yeah. get deeper with it, but coated um, very thinly onto whatever the substrate is. Um, and then you essentially have, once it's dry, because it's it's a jello, it's kind of like a gelatin, it's just like kind of, you, you need to put it in the fridge and it'll solidify. Once the moisture is pulled out and it solidifies, 
Um, you now have something that you can work with your hands to load into your camera, load into your film holder, um, whatever you whatever you uh, have chosen to uh, to make your photograph with. Um, some people choose solar cans, things like that. Um, <laughs> but anyway, um, whatever you've chosen to make your image with, uh, and then all you need to do now is expose it to light. Okay, so. As I said, I have a little bit of background in film, and I, I knew about the silver halides. I knew it was silver compounds. But the thing that I never got into, because I never had the hands-on experience of making my own color stuff, I understand, like, silver compounds are going to turn dark when they hit when the light hits them. That makes sense for black and white photography. But how does color film work? Color film is amazing. Um, the current processes uh, like C41 processing, which is uh, the typical color negative film processing that you would find today. Um, the, the, the way that starts, the film starts with um, multiple layers. So, so I described this emulsion with these silver crystals floating around in it, right? So in this jello. So when you are doing black and white film, uh, the silver crystals really are actually what create the black and white. So the black is actually silver crystals. So when you see darkness in an image that was created with black and white, that's actually the silver crystals. So to your question of, well, okay, how does that work in color then? Within color, we start adding more things into those layers. Uh, and so it's not just those silver halide crystals. There's now these these helpers and they they have dye they're called dye couplers and dye clouds so this gets really kind of crazy um and we're down at a molecular level too so it's kind of it's kind of nuts the science but um so they sit alongside with this silver crystal right and they're waiting to be activated and so when light hits them they they uh not only does the silver crystal start but it it then um a chemical reaction happens between those two pieces, which then forms the, that helps form the latent image and what color it was. So the dye kind of bonds with the silver and so it turns the silver to a color? Yes, so I guess the simple answer is yes. So so these, these dyes are sitting there in, along with the silver. And so mm -hmm. when they get activated, they essentially kind of turn on. And so they're then, left behind after processing and so okay great so how do you get all of the colors that that's great for one color yeah how do i get all of the colors in there and so you're dealing with essentially rgb only dyes so that's light so you've got an rgb coming in yeah the red green and blue light right and so then you have layers within the film that are sensitive to that particular light and so there's there's a red sensitive, um, there's a green sensitive, and a blue sensitive. And so those allow light to travel through them. So they're all stacked together like pancakes. Yeah. The light travels through all of them. And depending on the filtering, it hits and activates the silver within that particular layer and activates the dye coupler. So it basically says, I'm silver, I've been hit by light at this layer that was filtered for a specific color. 
okay, go attach me to the, the die that's next to me because I need to be that color now. Interesting. So it's kind of an activation. So it almost sounds to me like you've got layers of the film that are acting almost like the three types of cones that we have in our eyes that are sensitive to like the different wavelengths of light. Yes, yes. it's actually very similar to the rods and cones. Yes. Very, yes. very interesting. And I I appreciate that. I've always wondered about that. I've been curious about it. Um, but that is the first explanation that like really clicks in my head and makes sense to me. That's great. So then now if we can move on to the next step here, we've got our film, but like, you know, I was always taught if I could step into a camera, the image on the film would be the opposite colors of the real world because light hits the film and it turns dark and the image would be upside down. So how do we get from that negative to the positive print that we see on paper? So it's a good point. And so if you remember those layers, those layers then turn into dye. So the dyes are actually CMY. So you get cyan, magenta, and yellow. And so um, through uh, so the dye that ends up being in the film is those cyan, magenta, and yellow dyes. They are, like you said, though, reversed because they, uh, it's called color negative film. It's a yeah. negative of whatever the ending color you want to be. So that's where the processing comes in. The processing, uh, so the processing of making a print. Mm -hmm. So... We've processed the film. It's now stable. You know those colors are there. You can look, hold it up to the, hold it up to a light or the sun. You can see, you know, the weird-looking reverse color image. Um, the process of taking that to the paper is such that the paper is sensitive to, in a reverse fashion to the uh, what we would find as the the negative colors that you've got in your film, and so it just through the chemical process there is waiting for an inverse of the dyes. So whatever dye you had, it's waiting, it's waiting to be the opposite of that. And so when you make a, a photo, a true photo print on color paper, um, it's just chemically set up to be expecting the inverse of whatever it is to activate it. Okay, so just to think through this in simple terms, I take the film out of my camera and stop me when I say something wrong. I take the film out of my camera, I'm in a dark room, I put that film into a developer, right? And then I got a, the chemical bath to develop that film, rinse it off, the stop bath, right? To get it to stop so it's no longer sensitive. Probably yes. wash it again after that to get it clean. You do a lot of washing, yes. And then um, to get it from that tiny piece of film onto a piece of light-sensitive paper, it's it's not a contact print. It's probably a projector. Right. So typically they're referred to as enlargers if you're not using a contact printer. Yeah. Uh, the enlarger is like a projector. That's literally all it is. Um, it's light going through your film and projecting the image of the film onto the paper or whatever you, whatever light sensitive material you've got to uh, to make your quote unquote print. Yeah. It is so amazing to think that people have been doing this for so long. Like to think that people came up with that relatively quickly. Like we got from Daguerre to Kodak inside of what, like 50 years or something like that. It's amazing to think how quickly people made those innovations. But 
as we know, they haven't stopped making those innovations. So how does that uh, digital camera differ from our like traditional film cameras? So with a film, you've got these layers that are sensitive to, to the different light waves, uh, wa- wavelengths of light. Um, there's a lot of similarities, actually, in that um, there's, there's a sensor uh, that sensor needs to be sensitive to those same wavelengths of light. Mm-hmm. It does it in a very, very different way, though. So you hear about the word pixel, right? What is a yeah. pixel? It is um, essentially a photosite. What it's a photosite. So it's a think of it as a bucket, and you can fill it with with light. Um, only here's the the problem is that they're actually only sensitive to amounts of light. They actually are colorblind. So you put light hits it and it just measures the amount of light. So similar to what we do with film, where we have filters, where we're filtering out the light that goes through the different layers, we have to filter light in front of this sensor so that it becomes color aware. So they came up with this pattern invented by a scientist here at Kodak called the Bayer pattern. This bear pattern is a, a pattern of uh, RGB. It's an RGB pattern yeah. that then is applied to all the different buckets on this sensor that allow light in. And so when it measures light, it's saying, okay, I'm filtered to green and I have this much green light coming through. I know my sensor is green, right? Yeah. And I have this much coming through. And then through the magic of <laughs> image processing, which is why you've got the sensor and then you have an image processor. Through yeah. the magic of the image processor, it interprets that kind of checkerboard pattern of this RGB squares. It's literally what it looks like. It's a bunch of RGB squares and they have different light values. It interprets those and then says, ah, I think the color most closely associated with this area is purple, right? Because it uses yeah. the amounts of light and the um, the locations of the light on this kind of grid of a sensor to and it's run through a very complex mathematical equation to come up with what the color is that that actually represented. So is that based on the idea that basically like purple, is um, higher energy than red, right? So is it basing it on like the intensity of the light going in and then it knows like, okay, if it's getting this strong of a signal, it must probably be this color? Uh, It interprets, yes. It interprets the red, green, and blue values around itself and determines, oh, that must be purple. Yeah. Wow, that is... um... And then that, how that much hurts purple, my brain to think was, about? <laughs> it, it does. It, so scientifically, I mean, the the image sensor is, you know, we've got them in phones and everywhere, um, you know, nowadays. But but when these were invented, um, these are extremely complex scientific uh, tools. It's amazing because like. It's the kind of thing that, like, I can wrap my head around the basic idea of how that would work, but to think of the specifics and the number of computations that are happening seemingly instantaneously to form that image that we see, like, that's 
that's where it just like my my brain is ready to explode and hat is off to to you all for figuring out how to make that work now just to shift a little bit to how the rest of us can make things work i always like to get into some sort of tips and tricks that the rest of us who aren't carrying out millions of computations instantaneously how can we get the most out of our cameras this may sound cliche but i think the number one thing i would say is uh get out and use it um take it with you um i try to carry a camera with me all the time um you know a lot of people who are serious into photography they just have a camera with them all the time because especially with digital cameras i mean Lots of people have phones, right? You get immediate feedback, mm-hmm. um, so you're able to you're able to learn from experience. And honestly, there's there's really no better tool than a digital sensor in giving you that immediate feedback and allowing you to you know learn, um, take a look at something that um, that you were trying to make uh, and see. Did I get it right? Do I need to move? Uh, maybe I need to go up. Maybe I need to go down. Maybe the lighting isn't so great. Maybe I should, um, uh, you know, maybe I should just move on, take a picture of something else. Uh, um, so digital is a fantastic tool uh, in that regard. Then, you know, the teacher in me is hearing you say, I heard you twice say you get that instant feedback. And I heard you alluding to, and I want to make sure my listeners are hearing this. I heard you describing a process of reflecting on your work and revising and editing and trying again and trial and error. But looking critically at those photos you're taking, looking at that collection and trying different things is kind of how we discover brilliance. Anything else you want to share? And, and as you said, I mean that's that's kind of the case with with any art form is uh, there's a lot of trial and error. Um, if I had to give any kind of technical advice specific about, let's say, uh, film, for example, um, it would be somewhat similar. But film has kind of a baked-in look. Mm-hmm. There's there's uh, scientists who decided that this is how this film reacts to light. And it's not always a 100% accurate representation of that. So knowing that every film looks different and it's actually on purpose. And so it takes color in and it treats it just a little bit different than the other one. And, And so you've got this palette to paint with. And so if you're like, geez, I really don't like the cyan from this one. Let me go try this one. It's just like you're sitting there picking oil paints or those types of things to relate it to the art world. I mean, you have this palette, uh, you have choice. Uh, There's choice out there. And think about what colors you like, what colors um, you want to represent in your work. You know, I really like strong orange or, or things like that. There are there are different films out there that you will find that um, have more or less of what you like. And I would say, again, you know, try things out, see what you like, um, because there there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of options that can help you uh, kind of achieve what you've got in your in your mind. 
That is so true. And that's, I think, probably why in the digital world we have so many filters to give it that like warm look of the vintage Kodachrome and stuff like that, right? Like people love those different tones because of the expressive qualities of color. Absolutely. Absolutely. And you hear people talk about, you know, trying to make their images look cinematic and like yeah. people, people have people sometimes have a difficulty of even explaining what that means um but it's it's things that you absolutely you can make things look a certain way with digital and so that's that's not to say that you know film is the only thing that's capable of presenting this way no like you said there's plenty of filters that allow you to find color palettes and things like that that you want to play with so so image image uh, editing tools uh, filters in social media apps, things like that, mm -hmm. that allow you to uh, to play and and to figure out what you like, what you don't like, and and, and at the end of the day, it's just um, stick with it and keep looking and keep trying. Absolutely, I think you know the best advice we can always give. I think with a medium is. To just get out there and try it, to get started, to, you know, get past that sort of paralyzing fear of the blank page, the blank canvas, you know, to just take that first step. And I also want to reiterate that point you made about looking critically, take in that instant feedback, reflect, try things from different angles, you know, get a step closer to your subject. That was the first bit of advice I got in my photo classes. You set up your shot and then one step closer because most people are too far away. Yep. But looking at it critically, reflecting, revising, that's the process for improving, whether it's photographic media or anything else. Um, I just want to say once again, a big thank you to Matt Stoffel from Kodak. Thank you for taking the time so I can nerd out a little bit about photography. I love this stuff. Uh, it's my favorite thing to do. So thank you. I appreciate it. ArtSmart is written, produced, mixed, and edited by me, Kyle Wood. The background music you've been enjoying is from Less FM, Coma Media, and Music Unlimited. And a big thank you to my guest this week, Matt Stoffel from Kodak. ArtSmart is an Airwave Media podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please do me a favor, leave a rating or review on your favorite podcast app. If you'd like to learn more, check out my other podcast, Who Arted, or go to the website artsmartpodcast.com for more free resources.